Okay, good morning everyone. Hello, my name is Rich. Uh, as you may have guessed from the catchy new intro music, uh, we are in a series in Oasis Church called Love Poured Out. Um, it's a series in the book of John, uh, looking at the 24 hours leading up to Jesus' death on the cross, a single day uh, which is characterised by incredible teaching, by powerful prayers, and all of it leading up to the most significant event in all of history. And I want to start off this morning where Adrian finished uh, last week. And over the last couple of weeks, we've seen Jesus and the disciples in the upper room. They've been sharing their last meal together, the Last Supper. We've seen Jesus washing his disciples' feet and teaching them all about the home that they have with him. And at the very end of last week's passage, uh, John 14, verse 31, uh, it finishes with the words, come now, let us leave. Uh, and what you might expect to happen there is that Jesus and the disciples leave. Um, but that's not what happens. What we find is that it's not until John 18, verse 1, when Jesus had finished praying, uh, he left with his disciples, uh, that they actually do leave. And as far as I can tell, this is actually the first occasion in all of recorded history when Christians have said they're about to leave and then carried on talking for another 20 minutes until they actually do it. And I'm sure this scenario is totally alien to all of you here. Um, can't imagine anyone at Oasis starting another conversation on their way out of the door uh, and hanging around for a bit longer. Um, or maybe we're all just a little bit more like Jesus than we thought. Um, but the passage we're going to look at this morning, if it is indeed Jesus' last few words before he heads out the door, uh, has to be the absolute gold standard of parting remarks. And so we'll find it in John 15, and we're looking at verses 1 to 17 this morning. Uh, Jesus says this, I am the true vine, and my father is the gardener. He cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit, while every branch that does bear fruit he prunes so that it will be even more fruitful. You are already clean because of the word I've spoken to you. Remain in me as I also remain in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. I am the vine and you are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. If you do not remain in me, you're like a branch that is thrown away and withers. Such branches are picked up, thrown into the fire and burned. If you remain in me and my words remain in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. This is to my Father's glory, that you bear much fruit, showing yourselves to be my disciples." As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Now remain in my love. If you keep my commands, you'll remain in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commands and remain in his love. I have told you this so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. My command is this, love each other as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, to lay down one's life for one's friends. You are my friends if you do what I command. I no longer call you servants. 
because a servant does not know his master's business. Instead, I've called you friends. For everything I learned from my father, I've made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you so that you might go and bear fruit, fruit that will last. And so that whatever you ask in my name, the father will give you. This is my command. Love each other. And as we're seeing throughout this series, a big part of what Jesus is doing in these last 24 hours before his death is reminding his followers of some essential truths. He's reminding them of who he is, of what he does, and of how we follow in the light of that. And that's the shape of things as we're going to look through the passage and see how we apply it this morning to our own lives. And so in order to understand what he means when he talks about vines and branches... When he says those words that kick off this whole section, I am the true vine, we need to first look back at the big story of the whole Bible. Because this isn't an analogy that Jesus has kind of just plucked out of thin air, not because they had a bit of wine to drink earlier or because he was walking through a vineyard a few days ago. This imagery of plants and vines and gardens is something that runs all the way through the big story of Scripture. And it's something that we need to understand in order to get the full impact of what Jesus means when he says, I am the true vine. And so it all begins with creation. But out of darkness and chaos, God forms the universe and the world when he plants trees and creates animals. And then as the centerpiece, when he breathes life into humanity, a people made in his image in the world to enjoy, explore, rule, guard, keep care and love all that he has created. People who walk with God each and every day through the garden that he has made. But then things go wrong. Humanity decides to go its own way, to turn away from God and has to learn to live with the consequences of that separation from him. And so God raises up a whole nation a nation of Israel, a people who might walk with him throughout all of life in order that he would bless them so that they could bless the world around them. People he describes as his vineyard. People called to produce good fruit in order that all the world might come and taste and see that he is good. But Israel too falls short. Instead of producing good grapes, they produce bad fruit. The prophet Isaiah writes this, The vineyard of the Lord Almighty is the nation of Israel, and the people of Judah are the vines he delighted in. And he looked for justice, but saw bloodshed, for righteousness, but heard cries of distress. God's people, that nation called to reveal him in order that all might come and know, turn away. Instead of upholding justice, they ignore suffering. Instead of choosing righteousness, they worship idols. Instead of offering light and life to the world, they dwell in darkness and death themselves. And so when Jesus stands up, and says, I am the true vine. He's not speaking in a vacuum. To know Jesus as the true vine is to look back to Eden, that 
perfect meeting point of heaven and earth and see that through Jesus, that's what happens. That because of Jesus, we have an opportunity each and every day to draw close, to walk with him, to see the life of heaven cultivate the earth once again. Jesus is the fulfillment of that first promise of God coming to be with his people. To know Jesus as the true vine is to look back to Israel's calling, that people who are blessed in order that they might be a blessing to the nations and see that through Jesus, that's what happens. That because of him, every nation can come and be blessed. Every nation has an opportunity to come and taste and see that he is good. Jesus is the fulfillment of everything that Israel was called to be. To know Jesus as the true vine is to look back on Israel's failures, to see that people who couldn't uphold justice, who couldn't choose righteousness, who couldn't offer light, and see that through Jesus, that is what happens. That because of him, justice and righteousness were expressed perfectly on the cross in order that light and life might be offered to the whole world. And that through him, we might be raised up as a people who can uphold justice, who do choose righteousness, who are able to offer light and life to the world. Jesus is the fulfillment of everything that we couldn't do by ourselves. And to know Jesus as well is to look forward to the new creation, to see what's promised, to see that this as it is now isn't the end of the story, but that God's plan has always been to bring heaven to earth in order that the whole world would be filled with the knowledge of who he is. And so when we get to the end of the Bible, to Revelation 22, what we find is a garden, just like there was in Eden. A garden in the midst of a city and at its centre a river flowing from God's throne, flanked on either side by plants, by the tree of life, yielding its fruit every month for the healing of the nations. To know Jesus as the true vine is to know that through him, that's the future that will come to pass, a future of justice and righteousness and light and life, a future where there's healing and peace available to all. Jesus is the fulfilment of that long-awaited hope that although, although the world seems dark right now, there's a day coming when God will set everything to rights in order that all might share in the goodness of who he is. That's what it means that Jesus is the true vine. And there's one other thing I want to kind of draw out of um, this big theme that runs through scripture, which I alluded to a moment ago. Um, I'm sorry if I've already talked to you about this, if you're in your students and 20s, but it's something that God's really put on my heart lately. And that's the fact that at the start of the story, there's a garden. And at the end of the story, there's a garden in a city. And the fact that there's a city there at all is a remarkable example of God's grace. I don't know whether you'd count yourself as a city person or kind of a country person, um, I think we all know people who are very much city people and very much country people. Um, but as we've seen, the big story of the Bible starts not in a city, but in the country, in a garden, with God and humanity dwelling together. And then comes the fall. 
And what humanity does after they have to leave the garden is they go off and they build a city. And so if you want to look it up, it's there in Genesis 4, verse 17. Uh, Cain, Adam and Eve's eldest son, um, kills his younger brother Abel in a fit of jealousy. He's banished even further from Eden. And the first thing he does is he goes off and he builds a city. In other words, cities are the first thing that humanity invents and creates in their new world of sin and decay. Sorry to anyone who's a city person (laughs) here. But what does God do in this? He leads his people to a city, Jerusalem, where they can build a temple in order, not that uh, that might be the total of what God wants to do, but rather that would be a point from which his name could go out and be known through all the earth. He leads them to a city in order to show the anticipation of one day his presence will fill not just a city, but the whole earth. God takes the first thing that we create in our sin and our darkness and our decay, and he restores it and he redeems it, and he makes it part of his new creation. And he puts at its heart a tree that brings life, just as there was in Eden. Only this time, rather than being banished from it, we're invited to draw close to drink from the waters of life that flow out from the place where God dwells and bring healing to all. This is who Jesus is, the one who restores and redeems, the one who takes our mess and our sin and works in it to make something beautiful, something life-giving, something that draws others in and reveals the goodness of God. That's who Jesus is when he stands up and says, I am the true vine. He's calling us to look back and to look forward. And when we see him and who he is, it's the start of seeing what he does. And so I can't claim uh, to stand here this morning and be much of a gardener. In fact, there are two moments in my gardening career, as, it's, as it is, which stand out. Uh, And this is the first one where I think I'm discovering plants for the first time um, or I'm discovering gardening. Basically, I'm very excited by the fact that uh, plants exist and also by my very snazzy dungarees as well. Um, Unfortunately, that that might well be the beginning of my gardening career. It was also the end of it um, until quite recently, actually, at the uh, Oasis Staff Secret Santa where I picked a mystery present out of the box uh, and discovered, to my wonder, a gardening kit with a little trowel and a little fork. And since then, I've been faithfully out in my garden every weekend using them. Uh, Or I would have been if I hadn't just thrown them in the garage and left them there. Uh, I can't be the only person who's got a secret Santa gift which remains unused months later. As grateful as I am to whoever it was... (laughs) Sorry, Gus. (laughs) who gave it to me very generously. (laughs) And so with that as the context for my kind of gardening uh, background or my lack of gardening background, um, we're going to take a bit of time to look at what Jesus does through this analogy of vines and branches and fruit. And there are two main things that I want to draw out this morning. Firstly, pruning, and secondly, fruit bearing. And so right at the start of the passage, Jesus describes the Father as a gardener who prunes us in order that we might become more fruitful. And 
as I understand it from my kind of research this week, there are two main times for pruning a plant. You prune it between summer and winter if you want to cut back on the recent growth and focus the plant ready for growing new shoots for next year. Or, alternatively, you prune early in the year if you want to take off that new growth and enable the plant to focus its energy on producing fruit in the old branches. And if you don't do that, the plant suffers because of it. A vine, kind of left to itself, becomes wild. It gets all straggly and tangled up. The branches become knotted amongst themselves. The plant will get in the way of its own light. The inside will get darker and darker. And the end result is that it will produce a lot of bitter, sour, small grapes instead of a smaller number of higher quality, bigger, juicier ones. And so the vine, the plant, needs help in order to grow in the right direction, to grow in the right way. You prune it in order to stop it being unfruitful, unproductive, to stop it wasting energy. You cut out the parts that are growing inwards and getting all tangled up, and you encourage the shoots that are growing outwards towards the light. You prune the vine, in other words, to help it to be its true self, to help it achieve everything that it's capable of. And what Jesus is saying in this passage is that God works in the same way. Uh, The word he uses in verse 2, to prune, can also be translated to clean or to purify. It's a little play on words with what he goes on to say in verse 3. It reminds us of everything that Mike shared about a couple of weeks ago, that Jesus is the one who cleans us, who washes us. His act of cleansing his disciples' feet is a way of pointing forward to a greater cleansing that is to come, the cleansing of our whole selves. And when we listen and receive the word that Jesus speaks, the truth that he offers, we are made clean. But God desires so much more for us than a one-time cleansing. He wants to continually cleanse us or prune us in a different way, in a way that enables us to grow to be everything that we're capable of becoming. And in the same way, there are two times to prune. You prune before winter or you prune after winter. God prunes us in order to either encourage new growth, to take away the things of the past, even if those things have been good, Or he prunes us to help us not waste time chasing the new things and instead build on and deepen our old growth. It's a striking parallel that some plants are pruned before winter and some after. I don't know where you're at this morning. Whether you feel like you've maybe been going through a spiritual winter. Whether circumstances might have been a bit hard or you've been feeling a bit cold in your faith. We all get those times, and it can be easy during them to feel like God might have left the building, like he's absent when we need him the most. This passage reminds us the truth it speaks is that he hasn't. He knows there are times in our lives when we need to be pruned before winter to help us grow, and times we need to be pruned after to help us bear more fruit. But through it all, through the winter, through the storms, knowing Jesus as the true vine means that we can know that he's always with us. In a few weeks' time, the cricket season will start again. Um, 
and our offices upstairs look out on the pitch. And what we've seen for the last few months is even through the winter, in the darkest and rainiest days of um, November and December, every day the groundsmen are out there tending to the pitches. No matter what the weather is like, they're out there every day because they desire its best. We can know that Jesus is always with us, is always desiring our best. And again, this imagery of the vine and the branches is helpful. And so the vine's purpose is to transport all the nutrients and minerals and life-giving water that the plant needs into the branches. All of the goodness and nourishment and sustenance and life of the plant flows from the vine into the branches, enabling the fruit to grow. Any goodness that is there in the fruit and the branches is only there because of their relationship to the vine. But on the flip side, none of the goodness that is within the vine is withheld from the branches. All of that goodness and nourishment and sustenance and life flows out from the vine into the branches in order that they might enjoy all of it. Nothing is held back. The vine doesn't keep a secret supply for itself. Every good thing it receives, it passes on. And the inevitable result is that the branches grow and they bear fruit. The product of everything that's been poured into them. It's the same with Jesus. In him is all goodness, is all nourishment, is all sustenance, is all life. Every good thing is found in him. And it all flows from him directly into us, like all of those nutrients and minerals and life-giving water. If you have centred your life on Jesus, if you've been united to him in faith, then none of his goodness is withheld from you. None of it. All that he is, is ours. The Apostle Paul writes in Colossians 2, 9 and 10, for in Christ... All the fullness of God lives in bodily form. And in Christ, you have been brought to fullness. This is the one who is the fulfillment of everything that's been spoken about since the creation of the world. Everything that we have to hope for in the future. This is the one who is the full fullness of God in bodily form. Who created everything and sustained it in every moment by the power of of his word. This Jesus is yours if you want him. In him is fullness. And because of him, in you is fullness. In him you have fullness. This Jesus withholds nothing from you of the goodness of God. Do you know this Jesus this morning? Do you know him? If you don't, that's the invitation to come to the vine, to receive from him goodness and nourishment and sustenance and life itself. This is who Jesus is. This is what he does. And so the question that remains for us is how we follow in the light of that. And there are three main outworkings that I'd like to pick up on from the passage. Things that we might call up, in, and out. And so up is all about to do with our relationship with God. 
In is about how we relate to others within the community. And out is about how we relate to the world around us. And so first of all, up. Um, Jesus' encouragement in verse 7 is to allow his words to remain in us, to remain in us. And what does he mean by that? What he means is that it's not just about reading the Bible more. It's not just about learning and meditating on different passages. It's not just about listening to preaching and teaching about them, as good as each of those things are. It means that we seek the words of Jesus as living words, words which we see not as abstract concepts, but as words which come from the heart of a living person, one who is out for our best, one who is full of goodness for us. Letting Jesus' words remain in us is not like uh, revising facts or figures for an exam. It's not like mulling over wise sayings from ancient teachers or the latest book that you've been reading. And it's not like that because Jesus is alive today. He's alive and he doesn't want just thinking about his words to replace fellowship with him, relationship with him, intimacy with him. Studying his words, pondering his words, hearing teaching about his words, all of those things are not the end goal. They're a way to allow us to keep that living voice of Jesus speaking to us through the words of Scripture. The words that he says throughout all of Scripture, because it's all his, it's all about him, it all points us to him and leads us into deeper relationship with him. And so what that means is that if we spend some time thinking about or reflecting on a verse like, I have told you this so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. It means not just reading it and moving on, but rather reading it and coming to Jesus and thanking him and praising him that he is the source of all joy. It means that we pray that we might know that joy no matter what we're going through. We pray that he might make it fulfilled in our lives that we would know and reveal this joy wherever we've been uniquely placed. That's what it means to allow the words of Jesus to remain in you. It's not just about reading them. It's about taking them into our hearts as a spiritually intentional act of relating to a living person. So my encouragement, the encouragement from Jesus in this passage is to do whatever we need to do to allow his words to remain in us to hear them and respond to them as living words from the mouth of a living person. Secondly, in. Uh, Jesus, in building this community of disciples, is providing a model not just for how we are uh, to know him as intimately and closely as the disciples did, but also for how we are to build a community within the church, a community expressed through friendship and through family. And in verse 15, uh, where Jesus says, I no longer call you servants because a servant does not know his master's business. Instead, I've called you friends for everything I learned from the Father I've made known to you. When Jesus says that, he's not saying, I have accepted your friend request on Facebook. He's not saying, I'm following you back on Twitter. He's saying, everything I learned from the Father I've made known to you everything. He's saying, I've held nothing back, like the vine holding nothing back from the branches. He has opened himself up to us entirely 
in his words. He's laid himself down completely for us on the cross. He's given himself wholly to us by his spirit. And that's a picture of the lengths that we are to go to in order to build friendship and community with one another. And so Proverbs 27 verse 9 says that a sweet friendship refreshes the soul. A sweet friendship refreshes the soul. Friendship is all about knowing one another's souls, knowing one another on that deepest level. Our culture has forgotten how to have that level of intimacy without it really being about romance. We need to rediscover what it is to live openly and transparently with one another, to form deep, meaningful friendships which are not bound up just by romance. And I'll be honest, opening myself up to others, uh, giving something of myself away is something that I find incredibly hard. It's part of the human condition that we seek to protect ourselves by withdrawing within ourselves. And that's something I really struggle to do, to take conversations with others beneath that level of kind of surface um, comments. I really struggle to help people to get into the heart of who I am. Uh, even just this last week, I was having a conversation with someone that I know really well. Um, and I shared a little bit about something about my family kind of context or situation. And they turned to me and they said, Rich, I never knew that about you. Someone I've known for years. Um, something which I kind of take for granted, but which I'd never shared or opened up about. And as I reflect on it now, it just reminds me how much I need to go again on this, how much I need to keep pressing. Because Jesus says, not only is it a good thing to do, but it's an essential thing to do. That without openness, without those uh, friendships which refresh the soul, we cut ourselves off from that soul-refreshing goodness that is found in one another, that ultimately is found in him. We cut ourselves off from the vine and all the goodness that's in him when we don't relate well to one another. We end up like dried branches which are only good for burning. This call from Jesus is a call to deeper intimacy within who we are as a community. And finally, out. The call to remain is not just a call to stay where we are. It's not just a call to curve inwards, even if it seems like the thing we're curving towards are good things, Christians, Jesus himself. Strange as it might sound, the call to remain is a call to go. And that's one of the things that Israel got wrong in their role as the vine. Instead of reaching out, instead of seeking to fulfill that call that they were blessed in order to be a blessing to the nations of the world, to reveal to others that God is good, they curved inwards on themselves. And the real heart of this passage is not only about inward personal transformation, as good as that is, it's about a renewal of that original mission of Israel through Jesus and the community of disciples that he's building, a community that we are now a part of, a people who are called to be a blessing to the nations. Jesus says it in verse 16, you did not choose me, 
But I chose you and appointed you so that you might go and bear fruit, fruit that will last. He chose us in order that we might go out into the world. We go not because we are the most skilled or the most experienced or the most attractive or the most talented or in any way the most suitable or appropriate people for the task. We go because we've been summoned and sent. We've been called and caught up in who he is and in what he wants to do in the world, in bringing goodness and nourishment and sustenance and life to all who will receive it. We're to go out into the world, wherever we've been uniquely placed, to share the fruit of knowing Jesus and living with his spirit inside of us. We're to speak love to those who are alone, to bring comfort to those who are broken, to fight for justice for those who are suffering, to offer mercy to those who need forgiveness, to hold out truth to those who are searching in darkness. That's what we're to do. That's how we're to follow. And so my challenge to you as I close this morning, um, and I promise I am closing here, I'm not doing a Jesus. My challenge to you is to look up and in and out and ask how am I doing in each of these areas? What do I need to, gr- to do in order to grow in each of them? Who do I need to help me to do that? In my up, am I allowing the living word of Jesus to remain in me, to speak to me, to shape me? In my in, am I forming those soul-refreshing friendships with people that I can know and trust? In my out, am I revealing that fruit to those around me, wherever I've been uniquely placed. That's the challenge for us this morning in responding to Jesus' words. And so I wonder if I could just invite us to stand. Um, Why don't we pray? Jesus, I want to thank you that in you is all goodness and nourishment, and sustenance, and life, that you have withheld nothing from us that you learned from the Father. You call us and you invite us to know you, to know one another, to go out into the world as your disciples, your agents of change for a coming kingdom, in order that we might bear fruit Fruit not that will uh, decay, not just fruit for a time, but fruit that will last. I pray, Jesus, as we go out this week, you would be challenging us in how we're doing in that. Not uh, in order that we might feel condemnation from it, but rather that we might know that you are a good father who wants to prune us in order that we might be even more fruitful that we might know more the truth of who you are, that we might reveal it more to those around us. And so I pray, as we reflect on these verses, as we reflect on your call for us to remain in you, you would be challenging us on the parts of our lives that we need to prune. You'd be drawing us deeper into that friendship and relationship with you. And I want to thank you that you go with us wherever we go, working through us by your spirit. In your name.
Amen.